0: Holy Father, we come before you because we love you and we thank you, we worship you and praise you for this beautiful day, this wonderful opportunity to come and hear your name lifted up. Lord, we pray right now with all the extra curriculum that we're going on, cookbooks and and flyers and brochures and luncheons. Lord, help us to settle our minds and our hearts right now and to focus on you. That you would be our sufficient one, Lord. That you would be the one that we come to, to learn about and to worship today. We pray for Catherine now that you would anoint her in a special way, Lord, to speak your word. And we will give you the praise and the glory for all the change that comes about in our lives. Because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: I really do hope you'll come back next week. I I know every year we ask you, please, please come on sharing day, and then... The place is half full. Will you please just do me that favor and come next week? My mom is going to be here. (laughs) And I want her to see that we have a lot of ladies today. If she was here today, it would be so wonderful because there's so many of you here today. And next week there'll be ten and I'll just die. (laughs) But my daughter's going to be here too, who's graduating Saturday. Oh, another announcement. If you contributed to the cookbook, you get one of these free. And I had a lady this morning, one of the teachers at the school, she didn't want the cookbook. She wanted this.
0: (laughs) They're in a box up here on the front table, and I'll put some over there. And as you go by, if you'll just pick one up, if you gave a recipe, you get one of these, okay? That's from the company. And
1: it's got recipes in it, in case you wondered what it was. All right, would you open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 17? By the way, we have the fourth album in our Genesis study ready. Because we finished Lesson 40 last week, so there is now a fourth Genesis album. This is going to be the last chapter we look at this year, Genesis chapter 17. So we covered from chapter 4 to 17, which is a whole lot better than last year when we only covered 1, 2, and 3. So next year, in case anybody wants to know what will we be studying when we begin in the fall, what will you tell them? We'll start with Genesis chapter 18. It's just that simple. <clears throat> All right. Um, the title for our lesson today on Genesis 17 is El Shaddai. And I hope you don't have to leave early because at the end we have a very special treat. Jennifer Murr is going to sing for us a special s- song, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, called El Shaddai. As we come to Genesis 17, we discover that at least 14 years have passed since Abraham last heard from God. That was back in chapter 15. When he last heard from God, God had told him that his descendants would be as innumerable as the stars. And then he had ratified his covenant with Abraham in that very solemn and mysterious ceremony where God himself walked through the rows of slain animals. During the 13 years after Ishmael's birth, there was apparently nothing of much uh, consequence which occurred in Abraham's life because we find that the Holy Spirit did not have Moses record anything in the scripture during those 13 years. There was so, apparently, there was no fruit in Abraham's life. It was a period of spiritual barrenness. Rather than having waited on God, Abraham, as we looked at last week, had resorted to the natural ways of the flesh to attempt to obtain the son of promise. And the consequence seems to have been divine silence. No word from God in 14 years and not much forward progress spiritually for Abraham himself. Apparently, he had become rather complacent. He probably just sat back and accepted reality, or at least what he thought was reality, which was that he and Sarah were simply too old and Sarah was too barren to ever have a child together. Since Ishmael was the only child that he did have, Abraham must have come to believe that Ishmael had to be the son of promise. After all, Hagar, remember, Hagar's experience in the wilderness, at the fountain, the, the well, she had told Abraham that God had specifically promised to multiply her seed exceedingly. That was in chapter 16, verse 10. And that promise certainly corresponded to what God had told Abraham in reference to his own seed being as innumerable as both the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. So he must have assumed that Ishmael was the son of promise. Since Ishmael had now reached, when we come to chapter 17, we find that he had reached the age of 13 years old, Abraham was probably planning very soon to officially recognize him as the heir to the promise. So it was time for God to intervene. It was time for God to awaken Abraham's faith to look beyond Ishmael and the possible and to focus instead on the person and the power of God himself and the impossible. Because is he the God of the impossible? Yes, he is. Of course he is. So it was time for God to spell out in full and clear terms his covenant promises made to Abraham and his descendants and to make it known that the true son of promise was shortly to be born. However, before the birth of Isaac, Abraham's faith needed to be stirred up. It needed to be aroused. He needed a fresh experience with God. We have to remember that unlike Us Abraham did not have a written copy of God's word to which he could turn whenever he needed reassurance or encouragement. He needed to hear from God to get that. And so what he needed was to see God as the Almighty One who can do anything, including giving him a son, giving a son to a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman. And that, indeed, is a miracle, is it not? But God is the God of the impossible. So our lesson, El Shaddai, is going to cover uh, five main divisions. We'll look at the sufficient one of the covenant, the substance of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, the son of the covenant, And the submission to the covenant. So we'll begin with the sufficient one of the covenant, verses 1 to 3. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said... And by the way, the Lord there is the word Jehovah. And said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God, and that word for God is Elohim, and God talked with him, saying, and we'll leave what he said for our next division, so we'll stop right there. The greatest way to awaken or arouse our faith in the Lord is to receive a fresh revelation concerning just exactly who he is. And, of course, we receive that fresh revelation where? In the written word of God, the Bible. When Abraham was just one year short of being a century old... That is precisely what God did for him. Because God was about to tell Abraham that he and Sarah were finally to have a child, now that they were well beyond childbearing years. He wanted Abraham to understand him, God, in a new and a fresh way, a deeper way. Therefore, he introduced himself to Abraham by a new name, with a new name, using a new name. And that's what we see in verse 1. Not the word the Lord. I told you that was Jehovah. But in the name Almighty God, when he said that uh, he was, I am the Almighty God, that is the word what? The name for God. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, and this is the first time in the Bible that we find this name for God, and it is a name which appears about 48 times in the Old Testament. Most of those times are found in the book of Job. It's a name which stresses both God's power And his sufficiency. It speaks of the all powerful, all sufficient God, the life giver, the sustainer, the nourisher, as you see up here in this transparency. The God, in other words, who can do anything. He is the God of the impossible, and he can meet any need. You know, when Abraham needed assurance that uh, King Ketelahomer and those other kings from the east were not going to come back in vengeance to slay him, God had told him that he was his what? No, his shield. See, God meets us with his names where we need him. He said he was going to be his shield that's what Abraham was worried about, was vengeance. So he was going to be God's, uh, Abraham's shield. That was in chapter 15, verse 1. And then when Abraham needed to know that he had done the right thing, when he turned down the spoils of warfare from the king of Sodom, what had God told him he was for him? His exceeding great he didn't need the reward of king sodom of the king of sodom god was his exceeding great reward and now at the age of 99 years abraham believed that he and sarah were as good as dead as far as having a child was concerned, and therefore God told Abraham by way of his name El Shaddai that he was more than powerful and more than sufficient enough to do anything, including keeping his covenant promise regarding a son, as well as, of course, regarding the land. Twelve times in this chapter we read God say the words, I will. Twelve times. I will. I will. I will. Abraham could have supreme confidence that God would do that which he had said he would do. Why? Because he is Almighty God. He is El Shaddai. I almost wish that in our English Bibles it would tell us these names for God instead of just saying God or the Lord. I wish it would say that this is the word Jehovah, this is the word Adonai, this is the word um, El Roy, this is the word El Shaddai. I just wish it would do that because it's, it's significant. Now, although God would fulfill his unconditional covenant promises made earlier to Abraham, he would do it regardless of what Abraham did, yet God does expect those who are the recipients of his blessings to walk with integrity. You know, even though this was an unconditional promise, God would fulfill it no matter what Abraham did, yet God did really expect him to be a man of character, a man of integrity. And even though Abraham's integrity was not mandatory for the fulfillment of the covenant, it was expected. And so that's why God told Abraham to walk before him and be thou perfect. You see that at the end of verse 1. Divine revelation and divine privileges, divine blessings, do bring responsibilities on our part. It's interesting to notice that Abraham was told to walk before God. And if you remember in the uh, wilderness, the children of Israel walked where in relation to God? You know, they followed the pillar of fire and the cloud. So they walked behind. They walked after God. Here Abraham said, walk before me. The children of Israel were told to walk after the Lord. We were told um, in our study of Enoch and Noah that they walked with the Lord. And as believers in Christ, we are exhorted to walk in Christ, in God. Arthur Pink says this in his book, The Leanings in Genesis. He says, quote, To walk before is suggestive of a child running ahead and playing in the presence of his father, conscious of his perfect security because his father is just right behind him. To walk after becomes a servant following his master. To walk with indicates fellowship and friendship. To walk in denotes union. Thus, we walk before God as his children, we walk after him as his servants, we walk with him as his friends, and we walk in him as members of his body. I thought that was interesting. Well, the second command that God gave to Abraham was to be perfect. And some commentators attempt to water that word down and say, well, it doesn't really mean perfect because who can possibly be perfect? But let me assure you, the word does mean perfect. It's the Hebrew word tamin, and it is translated 44 times elsewhere in the Bible, and it means without blemish. It means perfect. It's the same word which is used in Psalm 19, verse 7, which says that the law of the Lord is perfect. Is the law of the Lord without blemish? And does that word mean perfect? Yes, it means perfect. So Abraham and you and I are to be perfect. Abraham's standard and his goal was to be perfection. I mean, after all, what lower standard could the perfect one himself, God, establish for his own children? Now, even though no man and no woman can attain perfection, yet that does not mean that it shouldn't be our goal. It should be our goal to be without blame, without blemish. We will never, of course, I admit, I'm the first one to admit that, this side of heaven, we will never see perfection. But lowering that standard is certainly not going to help our character achievement. Throughout the Bible, we find that the standard of perfection is what is set before us as believers. Remember what the Lord Jesus himself said. He said, Be ye therefore perfect. As your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. All the teachings of the New Testament could really be summarized in one single word, summed up in the word perfection. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. What were his steps like? They were perfect. (laughs) And so that is the standard that we are constantly to be striving after. Well, after exhorting Abraham to walk before him in perfection, in blamelessness, the Lord went on to promise him that he would keep his covenant with him and that he would indeed multiply him how much? Look at verse 2. Exceedingly. So, you see, this was a refreshing reminder that God had not forgotten his earlier promise of fruitfulness to Abraham. You know, and after 14 years of silence... Abraham must have really, really been thrilled to hear from God again and to know that despite his disobedience with Hagar, God had every intention of keeping his promises. Now, we know that Abraham must have been overwhelmed at the marvelous grace of God in condescending to reveal himself again. He may have thought, Abraham might have thought that after his little episode with Hagar that he would never hear from the Lord again. So when he did hear from the Lord and when the Lord reassured him that he had not forgotten all of his covenant promises, what did Abraham do? In verse 3 it says he fell on his face. He did that in worshipful prostration as God in his ever abounding grace then reaffirmed to him in the verses we're going to look at next. He reaffirms to him his covenant promises regarding both Abraham's heir and also the land. And in this passage that we're going to read about, I hate to end the year on this, but there's no other way to do it. He gives the additional uh, important Fact of circumcision. So we're gonna be talking a lot this morning about circumcision, which was to be a sign or the seal of the covenant. And so this brings us to the longest revelation of God to Abraham in the Bible. God God speaks to Abraham more in this chapter than he did anywhere else. From verses four to sixteen, it's really one long, unbroken monologue by the Lord. So we look now at part 2 of our outline. We've looked at the sufficient one of the covenant, El Shaddai. Now let's look at the substance of the covenant. For this, let's look at verses 4 to 8. God talked with him, saying, verse 4, "...as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham." For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, the message from God, which Abraham heard in Genesis chapter 17, can actually be divided into four parts. I'm not going to use these four divisions for our outline, but they're very interesting and very uh, significant, so I do want to point them out. They could be based—these four divisions could be based on the words, as for, and we find the first as for in verse 4, and it has to do with God. It says, as for me— And this means that what God would next be speaking regarding the covenant had to do with his end of matters, his end of things. He is the producer of the covenant. He is the initiator of the covenant and the one, therefore, who determined the specifics of the covenant. He said, as for me, behold, my covenant is... Is with thee. And if you'll notice as I'm reading this chapter, nine times God refers to the covenant as his covenant, my covenant. It was, remember, a one sided, unconditional covenant which God had made with Abraham. So, regardless of what Abraham and his descendants would do, they could never annul this covenant because whose covenant was it? God's. And you cannot annul what God has done. It's God's covenant. And that's important to know because Israel has failed many, many times over the years. But that doesn't matter. It's God's covenant. He will fulfill it. Well, the Lord then told Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, and this would have also been very reassuring for Abraham to hear again after so many years of silence. Next, however, for the very first time in Scripture, we find that God changes someone's name. First time Abraham's name is changed. First time anyone's name is changed. In this long revelation from God, Abraham was going to hear about the birth of of his son, Isaac, and uh, this was the promised son. So he was now going to be entering into a very key time, a key period of his walk with God, his journey with God. And it was to be represented, this key point in his life, this turning point, was to be represented by his new name. And this we're going to see occurs with Sarah as well in verse 15. God did this Thing, same thing with other people in the Bible at key points in their lives. For example, he changed the name of Jacob to what? To Israel. He changed Peter's name was Simon. He changed Simon's name to Peter. He names, uh, changed Saul's name to Paul all at very significant times in their lives, key points in their lives. So rather than being Abram, which means exalted father, God added a fifth letter in the Hebrew. Now you have to think Hebrew, don't think English. He had, Abram in Hebrew was only four letters long. Now God added a fifth letter in the Hebrew to his name, and he made it Abraham in English. Um, But that fifth letter that he added was the letter H, which is the sound of a breath. (sighs) Right? (sighs) And Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, devoted much time, I wish I could have just written out his whole quote but it would have taken several pages to do that but he spent a lot of time demonstrating that what God was doing was adding his own mighty breath or his own spirit to the name of Abram and I thought that was just really beautiful plus the fact that it was a fifth letter what does the number five in the Bible speak of God's grace and he would do exactly the same thing with Sarah, by the way. He added a fifth letter to her name, and it was also the letter H. <sighs> so that, I think that was worth pointing out. That's, that's a free little footnote there for you. Now, Abraham had to have faith in god's promises to take on this new name because can you imagine i mean it would have been embarrassing enough to have been exalted father you know when people say back in those days when you said your name everybody knew what your name meant and so every time he met someone new and they said well what's your name abram exalted father oh oh that's wonderful how many children do you have well for 86 years he would have to say none and that you know you could just imagine people kind of laughing what a ridiculous name he had exalted father and he had no children so that was embarrassing and enough for 86 years but now to have to go through the camp and tell everyone that his new name meant literally father of multitudes when he only had one 13 year old son would also be extremely embarrassing except for the fact that Abraham truly believed that God would make it true Now, in Genesis 17, verses 4 to 8 that I just read, the Lord did not present, and I'm sure you picked up on this, he did not present another covenant to Abraham. He was merely, this is like nothing new what he heard. Well, there is a few new things, but overall, nothing new that Abraham heard here. God was merely reaffirming the covenant that he had already established with Abraham. And five times, which again is the number of grace, five times in these five verses, we hear God say to Abraham, I will. He reconfirmed his previous promise regarding both the seed and the soil. You know, his heir and the land, which he would give to Abraham and his descendants. Beginning with his promise regarding Abraham's seed, God said, I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee. But then he added the fact—now this is new, if you want to circle this in verse 6. This is brand new. Abraham had never heard this before. He said that kings would also come forth from Abraham. And this certainly came to pass, because we not only think of King David and King Solomon and all the other kings from the house of Israel, but our minds should go to the king of kings— Who would come, and he, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God also said that he would establish his covenant, and again, he uses my covenant between me and thee and thy seed. And then he added another word which he had never mentioned before, and this is in verse 7. He said that it would be an everlasting covenant. It would be everlasting because his covenant with Abraham involves more than just time, it involves eternity. Why does it involve eternity? Because this covenant is all wrapped up in the ultimate seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the eternal Son of God. Then at the end of verse 7, the Lord expressed the primary reason for the Abrahamic covenant. And that was... He said, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. You know, the primary reason for the covenant wasn't for material blessings. It wasn't for children and it wasn't for land. The primary reason for this covenant was for the advancement of a people of faith. This covenant for Abraham and for all those who would like him place their faith in the promised seed of the woman, the Savior who would come and one day redeem them. This covenant was made so that God would have a people who would know him, a people who would have a personal relationship with him, a people upon whom he, as their God, could pour out his mercy and his love and his grace, a people who would eternally worship him and praise him and uh, serve him. Notice how he mentioned this primary purpose twice in these verses. Uh, He did it again at the end of verse 8. He said, and I will be their God. The promise that he would be their God, you see, has the understood corollary that they would be his people. He wanted a people who would know him. That's the primary purpose for this whole covenant. Then, continuing in verse 8, God reaffirmed to Abraham his previous promise regarding the land. He said, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan. But now... For the first time, just as in verse 6, for the first time God told Abraham that kings would come from him, and like in verse 7, for the first time he mentioned the fact that the covenant was an everlasting covenant, now, for the very first time, he actually tells him what land it would be. He never, I mean, it was understood that it would be the land of Canaan, but now, for the very first time, God says, yes, it's going to be the land of Canaan. He gives it a name, Canaan. Well, then the second as for, and it, you don't really see it in the English as as for, but in the Hebrew, it comes out as as for you in verse 9. In our Bible, it says, and, uh, and thou, or thou, but it, in the Hebrew, it's as for. So the second as for in this chapter comes in verse 9, and it is directed to Abraham. So the first as for was with regard to God himself. Now, this as for is with regard to Abraham, and it has to do with the sign of the covenant, and the sign is to be circumcision. So let's look at the sign of the covenant, verses 9 to 14. And God said unto Abraham... Thou And it it would really be, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you." And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Abraham and his descendants were not the first people to ever have engaged in this practice of circumcision. But God now for the first time was telling his servant Abraham that it was circumcision was to be used as a special sign of his covenant with Abraham and with all of Abraham's seed. Circumcision was not a means of salvation. It was a mark of separation. Make sure you do understand that. Not a means of salvation. It was a mark of separation for the man who was involved in a covenant relationship with God. And that relationship centered on the person or on belief in the person of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior of the covenant. In the days of the early church, um, There was a large group of Jews who were known as Judaizers, and they tried to add circumcision to faith in Christ in order for a person to be saved. In other words, they said that a person not only had to believe in the gospel, you know, that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived and died for them and their sins and was buried and rose on the third day. They not only had to believe all that, but they also had to be circumcised. However, the fact that Abraham believed and it was counted unto him as righteousness, where was that? Remember? Chapter 15, verse 6. Go ahead and look at it if you want to be refreshed. It tells us that he believed and he was counted as righteous. That means he was definitely saved. That that happened before, chapter 17, before he was ever circumcised. That is demonstrated. This fact is demonstrated and used very powerfully by the Apostle Paul as proof... That the physical operation, you know, the the circumcision surgery, had nothing at all to do with eternal salvation. So do you see why it's so important, the um, chronology that we have in the book of Genesis? It was very important that it told us that Abraham believed and it was counted unto him as righteousness before he was circumcised. And this is why I think in your homework, was it a couple weeks ago, you looked up a bunch of passages and you read about that. How it was important to know that circumcision came after salvation. So it's not a means of salvation, it's merely a mark, or it was in the Old Testament days, a mark of separation for the one in a covenant relationship with God. The permanent mark is in their flesh was to be a reminder, you see, of the everlasting covenant to all the members of Abraham's family. It was to remind them that they were to be God's holy, separated people, bound to his service. The cutting off of the flesh involved in circumcision was also to serve as a symbol of their willingness to eliminate moral and religious unfaithfulness. Even though the females were not participants in this rite, they were included, of course, in the covenant um, relationship in that God viewed man and woman as one, you know, man and wife as one. Also for a woman, she had to believe in the rite of circumcision to be in a a covenant relationship with God. So therefore, she had to marry a man who was circumcised, and she had to see to it with her husband that her sons were all circumcised. And even those slaves, whether they were born in the house of the covenant people or if they were bought with money and then came to serve in that house, they were also to be circumcised or else they were to be removed. Now, once the initial circumstances were performed on Abraham, the initial circumcision, not circumstances, circumcisions were performed, it reminds me of, remember that letter I read from my son over in Burma when he said that their English isn't the greatest, and he was sitting there in one of the services, and the the guy preaching said that they were to give thanks in every circumcision (laughs) instead of circumstance. Well, I just did the opposite. So once the initial circumcision was performed on Abraham and then on Ishmael and all of Abraham's extended family, which include would include the employees and the servants, then after that, after the initial circumcisions, then after that, circumcision was to be per- performed on male infants when they were how old? Eight days old. That's told to us in verse 12. So it was not the child who was understanding what he was doing. That poor little boy. (laughs) It was uh, the obedience of the parents that was important. The parents were to circumcise their eight-day-old sons as an expression of submissive faith. It was never, ever intended to be an expression of saving faith. It was an expression of submissive faith. Circumcision was a symbolic way of bringing a child under the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, but it did not automatically make anyone a child of God. Now, it's interesting, this is another little footnote, but it is interesting that to, to find out that it has been medically proven that the eighth day of a male infant's life is the very best day of his entire life for him to undergo the surgery which is involved in circumcision. Dr. S.I. McMillan, who's authored a book, some of you may have heard of it, it's called None of These Diseases states that the eighth day of a newborn male child's life is the day when both the blood clotting and infection-fighting agents in his blood are at their combined best. Now medical science did not discover that truth until the 1940s, but 4,000 years earlier God had told Abraham what day to have the male infants circumcised. So can we trust this book? You better believe it. Um, Also, this is another footnote, the descendants of Ishmael, who, who choose to circumcise their children, they ignore the scripture's clear instructions to do that on the eighth day of a boy's life. Instead, the descendants of Ishmael will circumcise their young men when they are 13 years old. And the reason they do this is because Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised. So they're wrong. They do not follow the clear instructions of the scripture. Furthermore, because Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham, they also claimed that they should be entitled to the land. You know, the, that's what the fight is all about over in Israel. They say they should get the land because Ishmael was the firstborn son. What they ignore, however, is what we're reading about in this chapter. They ignore the scripture's clear Clear teaching that uh, the covenant is with regard to Isaac and not to Ishmael. And we'll see this more as we read through the rest of the chapter. So back to circumcision. Circumcision was for identification, it was to indicate who the covenant people were. In fact, the lack of circumcision resulted in divine judgment. Um, it says at the end of verse 14 that a person should be cut off from his people because he hath broken my covenant. Now this, again, remember, this would have nothing to do with a person losing his salvation since circumcision saves no one. But the judgment did involve the exclusion of that individual who, who wasn't circumcised. It would exclude him or his parents Um, from the temporal blessings, the earthly blessings of the covenant. Do you remember that the Lord almost killed Moses? It's an amazing thing to read about that, but he did. He almost killed Moses. Why? Because Moses had failed to circumcise his son. And therefore, he almost did not have a part in delivering Israel into the promised land. See, Moses wouldn't have lost his salvation, But he would have been cut off, and he would not have been used by God to lead the people into the promised land if this had not been taken care of. It was taken care of. His wife did it. Not very happily, but she did it. Also, remember before Joshua could lead the Israelites over the Jordan River into the promised land of the covenant, he had to make sure that all of the males were circumcised. Because while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, circumcision was not practiced. So before they could go into the promised land of the covenant, all the men had to be circumcised. However, you know today that circumcision is not the identifying sign of believers for the church age. the, The sign or the seal of our salvation is a person. The seal, the sign of our salvation is the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Christians experience a spiritual circumcision which makes them therefore a part of the true circumcision, the family of Abraham. When we come to faith in Christ, his spirit performs spiritual surgery on us. It cuts away, he cuts away that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And so this surgery involves the cutting away of the old nature and the old man. Physical circumcision was merely, uh, it merely removed a part of the body, but spiritual circumcision puts off the whole man, as it says in Colossians 2.11, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off the body, the body of the sins of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. I hope I had that written right up there. Anyway, that's the end of circumcision until we get to the end when Abraham actually obeys. But let's move on now and look at the, whoops, the son of the covenant. And under this section, we're going to look quickly at the princess of the promised son, pleasure about the promised son, prayer for the other son, and privileges of both son. So we come to the third as for, and it has to do with the great miracle of the birth of Isaac. Okay, so it has to do with the birth of Isaac. The part This, is, of course, is the part of the covenant which most concerned Abraham and Sarah. And so this was an as for which they had really waited 25 years to hear. Because it's been 25 years since God first told Abraham that He would uh, make of him a great nation. 25 years since Genesis 12.2, so there would be no more talk of Eliezer's. There would be no more need, certainly, for any more Hagar's. This promise was for Sarah. It says, "As for Sarai." Now, in consider, I've already told you what we're going to do. All right, so let's move on and look first of all at the princess of the promised son and for this look at verses 15 and 16 and God said unto Abraham as for Sarai thy wife thou shalt not call her name Sarai but Sarah shall be her name Shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So we have a third new name in this chapter. The first new name was what? El Shaddai. Second new name was Abraham. And now we have a third new name, Sarah. And I already told you that God added a fifth letter, number of grace, to her name, Sarai, made it Sarah, (laughs) with a, you know, (laughs) H, and her name became Sarah, which means, who knows? They don't really know what Sarai meant. Some say it meant uh, contention, and that might have been appropriate, but uh, they're not real sure on what Sarai meant, but they do know what Sarah means. Princess. That's where I got the P for this uh, part of the outline. It means princess. And I think it was really a marvelous demonstration of God's grace for him to call Sarah princess after her scheme regarding Hagar and also after the way that she had treated Hagar. Now, we had been told that Abraham was to be the father of many nations and also of kings, so it's appropriate that now royal dignity is also bestowed on Sarah. She is to be the mother of kings. It tells us that in... um, Verse 16, she's also to be a mother of nations. Now, this is the first time we're being told about her specifically. So she also is to be a mother of nations, and kings shall come from her. So it's very appropriate that she be called princess. And I think, too, that in this new name for his wife, Abraham, this is just my own sanctified imagination, but I think Abraham was being told to treat his wife like a princess. (laughs) He needed to be told that. You know, it's very easy for us to honor and respect our husbands. I'd even be willing to call him Lord (laughs) if he would just treat me like a princess. (laughs) Then it would be very easy to do. All right, that's about the princess. Let's move on because we're running out of time. The pleasure about the promised son, verses 17... And 19, I'm just going to read the beginning of 19, so jump from 17 to 19. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? and Now look at the first part of verse 19. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. When God, When Abraham heard the fantastic news that God would specifically bless Sarah and that it would be through her that he would have a son, what did he do? He simply fell on his face in utter astonishment and laughed with sheer joy. This was a laughter of joy. Uh, it wasn't a laughter of mockery at what God had said, because if Abraham had laughed mockingly, then God would not have responded in the next few verses the way that he did. You know, you do not laugh with ridicule or scorn at God and get away with it. So we know that Abraham's laughter here was one of wonderment and joy. It was a laughter of astonishment that God was going to give an 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman a son. You'd laugh too, wouldn't you? <laughs> So, but it really was a laughter of faith. This is not a laughter of unbelief. Now, when Sarah hears the Lord say this in chapter 18, her laughter, there's three laughters associated with the birth of Isaac. Abraham's laughter was a laughter of faith. Sarah's laughter was a laughter of unbelief. Remember when she was eavesdropping at the tent? (laughs) That was a laughter of unbelief. But in chapter 21, when she actually physically gave birth to Isaac, she laughed again. And it was there, it was totally a laughter of joy that her son was finally born. And notice in verse 17, what does Abraham call uh, his wife? He, he called her Sarah, first time. He called her princess. And I think that that tells us right there that he did believe that she would indeed be the mother of many nations and the mother of kings. She was worthy to be called a princess. In verse 19a that I read, God told Abraham, as he did in verse 16, that Sarah would bear a son. And then he went on to tell Abraham the son's name. What was it? Isaac. And you all know what that name means, don't you? Laughter. Or he laughs. Either one. Laughter or he laughs. This was to be the promised son. And this time, you see, rather than giving the name to the mother, as God had done when he gave Ishmael's name to Hagar, who does God give the name to for the promised son? rightfully to Abraham. He tells Abraham what to name his son. Now, the first son, the first child in the Bible to have been named by God before his birth was Ishmael. The second son to be named by God before his birth was Isaac. Now, it's interesting that these two sons of Abraham represent the two different births. Ishmael represents man's first birth, man's physical birth, our birth after the flesh, while Isaac represents the joyous second birth, you know, the spiritual birth, the birth through the Spirit, the birth when we are born again. So isn't it wonderful to have a God who delights in bringing laughter to the hearts of those who place their faith in him and are thereby born again. I mean that's what really brings joy to your life, isn't it? Your second birth. When you are born again. Laughter comes with the second birth. Joy comes with the second birth. So I thought that was interesting. Okay, the prayer for the other son, verse 18. And Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Abraham obviously loved his son, Ishmael. Very, oops, there's the laughter part. <laughs> he obviously loved his son very dearly, and that's indicated by this prayer of intercession. You know, it's, of course, very good and it's very right for a father to love his children as Abraham loved Ishmael. There's nothing wrong in him loving Ishmael. That was very right. Every father should cry out to God in intercession on behalf of his children. And Abraham had spent the last 13 years of his life dearly loving this precious child of his old age, so it was very natural for him, after hearing about the birth of a son through Sarah, now it's very natural for his mind to begin to immediately think of his other son, the only son whom he had ever known. It probably dawned on him that somehow or another his relationship with Ishmael was going to be changed with the birth of this second son, this promised son. And so what did he do? He immediately called out to God, and you can just hear the depth of his heart in this prayer. Um, he calls out, and he, this is uh, to bless Ishmael, and this is, by the way, the first, it's hard to believe, but it's true, this is the first recorded prayer in the Bible first recorded prayer in the Bible, and it is, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Do you think there have been many Christian missionaries and Christians over the years who have prayed this same prayer for the Arabic people? Oh, that Ishmael, the Islamic people, might live before thee instead of before Allah. So over his past 13 years, we can just imagine that Abraham had come to believe that the promise of, of descendants and the promise of the, the one that would carry on the Messianic line and all the covenant promise regarding the land, that all of those were dependent upon Ishmael. He probably had come to believe that. But Ishmael could not replace Isaac or even be on an equal basis with Isaac in the covenant plan of God. God here did not condescend, in the next verses we're going to look at, he did not condescend to argue with Abraham about all the reasons for this, why it couldn't be Ishmael and why it had to be Isaac. He merely told him, in verse 19, that it would be Sarah's son, whom he was to name Isaac, with whom he would establish his everlasting covenant. Um, Now the Lord, remember, had already promised to bless Ishmael. He had done that when Ishmael was yet in Hagar's womb. Remember when Hagar was by the water in the wilderness, God had, had promised that he would bless her son. And God would keep that promise. He certainly would keep that promise. Yet the covenant blessings were not to be a part of Ishmael's heritage. They were for Isaac only. So let's look at verses 19b to 21, the privileges of both sons. 19b, where it says, And I will establish my covenant with him. That's Isaac For an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for, now here's the fourth as for in this chapter As for Ishmael, I have heard thee. And that's a play on words because what does Ishmael mean? God hears. God always does this. We don't see it in the English, but he always is playing on words. He says, as for God hears, I have heard (laughs) thee. Behold, I have blessed him. See, he already blessed him. And I will make him fruitful, just like I told Hagar. And I will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget. Now, that's a new promise there. And that actually came to pass Ishmael did have 12 sons. And God says, and I will make him a great nation. He also has made him a great nation. Verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with who? With Isaac, not with Ishmael, with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time, in the next year. So in these verses, we find yet another way to have stirring, a new stirring of faith, and it is by simply accepting and surrendering to the will and purposes of God. And this is what Abraham did, although it would not have been easy for him. His dreams for 13 years had been focused on Ishmael, because he had no other son, and he did not seem to think that there would be another son. However... His focus was not in line with God's plan and God's will. So after hearing Abraham's plea for Ishmael, God very clearly reconfirmed precisely that his will was with regard to Isaac and not with Ishmael. Um, essentially I've already I'm going to skip some of the stuff in my notes here, but I've already told you as we read through those some of the things that um, God promised. Like, for example, the 12 princes, you can read about them in Genesis 21, verse 18, and Genesis 25, verses 12 to 16, did come to pass. And then, as I said, for the third time in verse 21, God stated that it was his will that the covenant of the promised seed and the promised land was to be established with Isaac. So three times, he says, it's with Isaac, it's with Isaac, it's with Isaac. The promised Savior would come through the Jews and not through the Arabs. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Salvation is of the Jews. And then it says following that third confirmation that his plan was with Isaac God gave Abraham one more additional fact before then it says that he took off and went up from him. That reminds me of the Lord Jesus when he went up from his disciples. That's verse 22 when it says he went up from him. But what was that one additional fact? Right. At the end of verse 21, El Shaddai, the all-powerful, all-sufficient God, told Abraham that at that same time, the following year, Sarah would give birth to Isaac. And truly, truly, that news would have aroused the faith of the patriarch who had waited most of his life to have a child with his beloved princess, his beloved wife. However, the important fact about this coming pregnancy... And birth would be that who would get the glory? God would get the glory. Because truly everyone would have to admit that it was indeed a miracle. Well, the last part of our outline, I'm not really going to talk much about, but let's just read those verses. Submission to the covenant, verses 22 to 27. And he left off, God left off, talking with Abraham... And God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day. did it that very day. Immediate obedience, as God had said unto him. And Abram, Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. He set the example That had to have been a very difficult thing for a 99-year-old man to do. I mean, very painful and very humiliating thing, but he set the example and did it. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the same day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son and all the men of his house born in the house and bought with money of the strangers were circumcised with him. Obedience is not always easy in the Christian life, but it is mandatory. And there were two things that made circumcision a very, very difficult thing, uh, matter of obedience, especially for older boys and men, and that was that it was painful and it was... Uh, hurt, I mean it was uh, humbling it it was a matter of pain and pride and yet Abraham's obedience was instant because he gathered everybody, to. that shows that he was quite a leader, everybody obeyed him, I mean can't you imagine that there might have been a little back talk on that one, a little resistance (laughs) even getting a 13 year old boy to do it but that shows us that Abraham had quite a bit of authority and everybody in his household was circumcised All right, now we're going to really, really be blessed as um, wherever she is. Where is she? She's coming down. Jennifer is going to come and close us up with a beautiful song. I'm really looking forward to this because I have never heard Jennifer Murr sing, and I'm told that she's got a beautiful voice. She's taped her own music, I think, on the piano. No, you didn't? You found the tape? I found the soundtrack and learned it yesterday. Oh, she learned it yesterday. All right, well, come and bless us.
2: Should I Christ was near. Though the people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. Though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Ellyonah Adonai. Age to age, you're still the same.